Twitch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with my co-host, Alan Ben-Joseph, and me, the other guy, Rob Nuds. Today, <laughs> I thought I'd mix it up for once, you know, try something new. Uh, today, we are back in the studio together, and we have our Q&A session, our weekly Q&A session. And we have seven questions from the mailbag, which we have selected to answer today. Good morning, Alan. Are you looking forward to this? I actually am. It's crazy busy when our dear listeners are hearing this. It's already 23, 2023. We're recording this at the end of the year. You might think that everything is slowing down, but we're actually cracking, aren't we? Ah, oh, this has been the busiest week of the year for me. It's driving me mad. And I keep, because I'm, I'm, I'm classically uh, susceptible to procrastination. And I have been fiddling around with our website this morning. And users of the website might notice that it changed about five times today on December 21st. So if you're wondering what was going on, that was me having one of those moments when I really shouldn't have been doing anything with the website. I should have been emailing and writing. I've got, I've got a deadline for a 12,000 words by the end of the week, and it's Wednesday, that hasn't been done yet. And now here I am. And I was chatting to Alon for an hour before we started recording. So, I, you know, what can I say? Uh, no wonder I'm busy because I can't put my mind to the work, but you're actually genuinely busy doing stuff in the shop and taking care of business, right? As well, yes. Um, a lot of people are hunting down gifts. Um, surprisingly, it's very busy. I mean, the world is on fire, but. Thank God people still love and precious metals and gems and especially watches as well. While we're on that subject, I'm actually quite interested just from a personal perspective. What kind of things are people buying now? Has there been any change in consumer behavior in the last couple of years? If we look at a span of a decade, two decades, where back in the day for jewelers, 25% of annual turnover was done in two, three weeks. In the Netherlands, we celebrate Sinterklaas, which is on the 5th of December. It's a Santa Claus light. It's a bit of a, a different version. And we also celebrate Christmas in the Netherlands. So 5th of December is kids, small gifts, 5, 10 euros, no more. So shopping only starts mid-December because they need to recover from all the celebrations around the 5th of December. That means you have a window of 10 days up until Christmas. In Holland, uh, we don't really have Boxing Day. It's two days of holiday. And then after Christmas, a lot of people are off and then super busy in retail. So two weeks, we're extremely busy. But retail changed. Ecom came up. Um, and, and an aspect that changed retail for jewelers is the fashion industry, especially in Netherlands. They started doing eight months of the 12 sale. And they started about five, seven years ago, or maybe even 10 years ago, with doing sales, starting the discounting before Christmas. In Belgium, by law, retailers are not allowed to start sale from Boxing Day onwards. I think in UK, it's not a hard law, but they respect that unwritten rule. Here in the Netherlands, they did. That means it changed the behavior of buying gifts, right? In the US, we obviously know Black Friday after Thanksgiving, Cyber Monday. Um, so that changed. So now today, our sales are scattered. We don't do a quarter of our annual turnover in those two weeks anymore. But that being said, um, a lot of gifting is done for the ladies, so a lot of jewels are bought, whereas the, it peaks in December. 
And ladies buy watches for men, they buy watches for themselves. And a lot of men know they're getting bonuses and they're spending that on themselves as well. Well, that's interesting to hear. And as one of the questions that I was asked by uh, Moritz, our friend in Gloucester, which we haven't got around to yet. And I think it's one that you can answer directly and one that might be very relevant to shoppers around this period that are looking to buy not a new watch, but a pre-owned watch from a particular brand, and that's Rolex. And Moritz asks us, and this is Nomoshino on Glassiter, that's at N-O-M-O-S-C-H-I-N-O. He asks, do you guys know how the new Rolex certified pre-owned project is working? Now, I don't, but I think you do. So go ahead and answer this one. Yeah, so this news was announced about two weeks ago while recording this. So now when you guys are listening to it, it's in a full swing. So it's actually groundbreaking news and it's major news. What Rolex did, they announced that they are launching a certified pre-owned program, which means they announced, it's not a test, their first retail partner to do so, which is Bucherer, originally founded in Luzern in Switzerland at the end of the 19th century. They are, I'm quite sure, the biggest Rolex retailer in the world. Why in the world? Because they have footprint all over Europe and the US. They have a lot of points of sales. In the US, they bought Tourneau. In the UK, they bought DM, so let's say the watch room in Selfridges and a few more stores, including a huge monobrand Rolex boutique, I believe in Knightsbridge. Um, and they have a tremendous after-sales operation including for Rolex, and they actually invested heavily in CPO for all other brands. So Rolex granted them to be the first in the world of their authorized dealers to launch this program, which means any pre-owned watch that goes through an authorized Rolex after-sale center, which in this case still is only Bukhara, but I've heard already through the grapevine, that every Rolex dealer is authorized to do so after the accreditation by Rolex. And every watch that goes through that program gets a white hang tag, which if you buy a new Rolex, it's a green seal, plastic seal, and has the Rolex logo and hologram, I think, on it. If it goes to the certified program, it's a cream, ivory, whitish tag, exactly the same in shape. And you get a little white leather or leather lookalike credit card holder with a card that certifies authenticity, gives warranty on that watch, and can be sold through that authorized Rolex dealer. And that's it. What do you think of it, Rob? Do you think it's a good initiative by Rolex? Yeah, definitely. I mean, any kind of certification for certainly something so frequently faked as a Rolex is um, a huge bonus to the consumer. I think it's a nice thing. I wonder whether it will have any effect on the pre-loved prices. What do you think about that? 
So there was a lot of speculation. Actually, it created quite some ripples, especially in the CPO market. There was a lot of criticism. They said, oh, Rolex wants to chip in on these huge inflated prices on the secondhand market. I don't think that's the case. I don't think it has anything to do with Rolex making more money. What they're trying to do is create a baseline for pre-owned Rolexes because they were technically ignoring that huge pre-owned market. You could obviously bring in any Rolex to your Rolex AD or a Rolex service center because they have many globally, not in the Netherlands, but um, you, I know buddies of mine in Toronto, New York, just walk into the local headquarters of Rolex and they can get their watches serviced. Often, sometimes wait for their watch even. And many of the cases, although it's out of warranty, they'll do it free of charge. So superlative service for superlative watches. Um, so it's not that spectacular. And I definitely don't think they want to chip in on these high prices. Will it increase the prices of pre-owned Rolexes of a particular model with or without that cream white hang tag? I definitely think so. And there was a lot of chatter. The predictions are around 15, 20% more. Geez. For, yeah, you say geez, but is it really that much? I mean, a after-sales service usually costs about, let's say, 10%. Of RRP? Of RRP, yeah. Yeah. So why not have an increase of a fully certified pre-owned watch with warranty? I mean, they're expensive enough already. That's the only answer I have. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But but is I, I have a lot of Oyster Perpetuals here. I'm talking about 50s, 60s, 70s that still go for 2, 3, 4K. So let's say that those are fully serviced and certified by Rolex and you only charge 15, 20% more. Isn't that reasonable? I'm not talking about the day, I'm not talking about the Daytonas, the new Daytonas that, that are going for 35, let's say, yeah, which is idiotic. Which is idiotic. Right. Okay. Well, if you're not talking about those Daytonas, then yes, that's reasonable. I'd pay that um, for something like you're describing, like an Oyster Perpetual from from yesteryear. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that does appeal to me for sure. Um, just the extra premium on stuff that already has a crazy premium on top is is not so appealing to me. But I can't fault the theory behind the process. At least it'll be interesting to see how it bears out in practice. But sounds like it's going pretty well for the time being. It's new. Uh, the ambition is to roll it out worldwide with all their ADs. And 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 I've recently started using TikTok a bit more. And the accounts that I enjoy watching the most is these uh, CPO dealers or PO dealers. They're, I don't think they're technically certified. And they're mostly uh, based on the 42nd street in new york at the diamond district nice. i find it very amusing they're documenting their life while they're haggling like traders between traders and then they're proud how much they got off a price but it's very funny so they always walk around with a loop and a pin not to take their sim card out of their iphones but to pop the metal bracelets off the rolex cases to check the serial numbers and then they have a table 
which obviously states the serial numbers, but up until, let's say, 15, 20 years ago, you can't predict them anymore because they mix letters with numbers. And they have a loop to check the dials if they're Frankensteins and if it's original. And I find that very amusing, actually. And and I think for them, it adds a lot of value, this service. Have you seen that film by uh, the Adam Sandler film called Uncut yes. Gems? Yes, of course. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. exactly what that makes me think of, like that kind yeah. of character. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is literally that, but then in real life. So... Uh, <laughs> Very interesting. But uh, I would love to hear from our listeners what their view is on this, I guess, evolutionary. It's not such a big step because you could always get your watch revised and therefore certified by Rolex. Because if the warranty papers for your repair come back from Rolex, it's technically certified, right? So right. It's, not, it's not a revolution. But it's brought as a revolution. It's re- it's perceived and received as a revolution. So I'm very curious what our listeners think about it. You know, there's another aspect to what our listeners might think about this whole thing is whether or not they can afford to buy the Rolex in the first place. And there's a question that we've received by one of our most loyal followers, and that's Christopher from Stockholm in Sweden. And he responded to one of our IG stories with this question. How does the salary for watchmakers differ around the world? In Sweden, it sucks. Hardly worth getting out of bed for, he says. Now, you know, there are a lot of people that say this amount of money is not worth getting out of bed for. And of course, for many people around the world, it very much would be. So we don't mean to be derisive in that sense, um, because obviously when you're talking about any multi-thousand wage a year, then it's worthwhile and uh, can be the difference between people living comfortably or otherwise but in the grand scheme of things i have to say unfortunately for christopher the salary for watchmakers themselves and we're talking really watch services around the world not just watch technicians they can be qualified watchmakers but people that spend their time servicing watches refurbishing watches rather than actually making components as you would expect the the masters to be doing is very poor it is very low um So I can give you a candid insight into my experience as a watchmaker. Now, when I did my apprenticeship at the British School of Watchmaking, I I was actually paid a salary throughout those two years. For the first year, I was paid £11,000. And in the second year, I was paid £12,000. Now, that wasn't actually enough for me to uh, pay for my transport costs to school and my rent and food. So I did work... um, I worked in a kitchen in a pub while I was doing my apprenticeship as well and did a shift on Sundays on the bar between 12 and 6 after cleaning the place before opening. So uh, it was not much money, but I was very grateful of the fact I was A, on the course and B, actually being paid something to study because it was a far cry from my university days when the money was only going one way. Now, to repay that investment that the Swatch Group had made in me, I then worked in Southampton for two and a half years. And my starting salary in that first year was 17,000. And that went up to 18,000 the following year. And I think it crept up to around 19 before I left. Now that seems quite low because the the regular starting salary for a watchmaker with a qualification in the UK is around 26, 26 to 28, I would guess these days. And um, any new watchmakers that joined the team while I was, while I was working off the debt to the company for them having funded my apprenticeship would start on that amount. And that was quite frustrating at the time. It was fair enough because the company had invested in me. Of course, I knew what the deal was. 
But to see someone come in, do the same job as you, maybe even have a slightly lesser qualification in some cases, and be paid between uh, uh, nine and eight and nine thousand more was 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 quite disheartening. I uh, I moved up to that more regular level when I went to Bremont. I was very satisfied on that money because I was able to live more comfortably than ever before. But when I took the job as an almost sales executive and moved away from the bench, I also did a bit of research in Glasseter as to what the regular salaries were there. And it's much cheaper to live in in Glasseter itself than it is to live in, say, Manchester or London or Southampton as I had done before, and especially cheaper than living in Geneva or anywhere in Scandinavia. So the wages maybe go a little bit further, but Dresden itself, which is the nearest major city to Glasgow and where most of the younger watchmakers live and commute from, is actually more expensive than Manchester in many, many ways, and around the same price as Southampton, a little cheaper than London, and a lot cheaper than Stockholm. So the answer is that salaries don't get bigger where you go. They don't go much further. You will earn a little more in Geneva, for example, but the fact that it costs you 18 francs for a Five Guys burger instead of six pounds is is why you earn that extra money. So I'm afraid, Chris, um, to be on the ground level of watchmaking, to be a service-charged watchmaker, to be somebody that just works for other people is never going to make you rich. Not in a monetary sense, but it might make you rich in the sense for soul, at least, if you enjoy that kind of work, as I did very much. And I was always very grateful to have the opportunity to do that as a job, because had I been stuck in an office, which was my nightmare, I probably would have spent my evenings tinkering with watch movements as it was. So luckily for me, I could go out and earn a living wage and um, play with watches all day long and, you know dream of maybe owning one of the pieces that I spent eight hours a day fixing, which is a great irony, actually, because, of course, I couldn't really ever afford to buy a watch when I was actually a watchmaker. And it was only after I moved away from the bench that I started to collect. In fact, the only watch that I bought while I was a watchmaker, I think, was my first Laventure Marine, which I bought on Kickstarter. I backed the project when it was about 1,400 francs. And now, of course, given the trajectory of that brand, if you don't know about it, the brand is Laventure. That's L-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E dot Swiss. You can find it online and research it. Those pieces have now become unobtainium, as they say. And would, that piece would probably sell for five, six, seven thousand on the pre-loved market if I ever cared to look at how much it was going for, but I don't because I'll never sell it because it was a very important watch to me. But now, of course, things are very different. Now I can buy watches and enjoy them, uh, but not because I was a watchmaker and on a watchmaker's salary. However, anyone that's thinking about pursuing it as a career, I would wholeheartedly recommend it because it is very satisfying and there are a hell of a lot of worse things you could be doing with your time if you are a devout watch lover did you know that alan did you know what the salaries were like on the ground level of watchmaking i actually did because um if you listen to the show you know i grew up in this industry and if you don't well i've been uh born into this um industry lucky for me for some it's a curse but for me it's a blessing um i always say to people the only thing that shines in this bling bling are the items either in the window showcase or on your wrist. Behind the scenes, retail don't work in this industry. Retail, if you want to buy the Holy Grail watch, don't become a watchmaker because you think it's a 
quick wins and a lot of money. And Rob beautifully explained it. I always say it's all about purchasing parity. So the, the purchasing power you have. So in Switzerland, salaries are way higher, but everything is expensive there. Um, and, and a test is always if you walk through uh, watch factories, you'll see that the actual watchmakers don't wear the brands they're working on. And it might seem logical for a Patek Philippe or an Urwerk or an MBNF because they don't have enough. But even if you go to Breitling or IWC or Omega, they actually don't wear the watches they produce. And one of the bigger reasons is that they can't afford it. Maybe they don't like the brands they're working for. That could be. But often they do have a great passion for the brands they work for. Um, so for all aspiring watchmakers, get in to the job because it's your passion. Um on average, there are only a few that really make a lot of money in this industry. And even as a retailer, I'm not in it for the money. I do a lot of things on the side, including this podcast, because it's my passion and it's fun. Um, before the crypto winter, I said, if you want a quick buck and you don't want to be a criminal, go do crypto. Don't flip watches. Watch is another commodity. And a lot of people got burned now in the last few months that dealt in watches as pure commodity and out of passion. They lost a lot of money. And I even know big dealers and CPO dealers that got burned, Rob. So the conclusion of this story is get fueled by your passion. Couldn't have said it better myself. Perfect. Rob, I would like to very quickly for you to tell our listeners what you're doing today, because if they tune in now and didn't listen to our previous episodes, so you just mentioned at the beginning of this episode that you have to write a 12,000 or 15,000 word article. So tell us what you do on the side, besides being a watchmaker, because you hardly sit at the bench anymore, right? No, very rarely, although it might be about to happen soon for the first time in a few years, really? which is exciting. Yeah, well, you know, I've taken a role, um, technically still freelance, of course, so I'm I'm a gun for hire in case anybody needs a wedding stripper. I'm there. (laughs) (laughs) I I could go badly wrong. My contact details are everywhere. Um, Yeah, so I recently took the position as head of brand development for Arcanaut in Copenhagen. Uh, Nice, uh, small independent brands working with some already established industry legends, especially James Thompson, the Black Badger over in Gothenburg in Sweden. He's a co-owner of the brand and a creator of a great many wonderful materials that have been used by Arcanor and other brands such as MB&F in the watch industry. And um, we, we do currently work with a watchmaker who assembles all of the pieces for Arcanor, but there is a chance that I'll be taking a little bit more of a hands-on role in the future as we look to streamline the production process and. Uh, I mean, let's face it, as, as production increases and as uh, sales go up, if they continue to go up as they have been doing recently, then there will be the requirement to have more trained people getting hands-on with the watches. But that's what takes up most of my time, working with the guys in Denmark, helping to build a brand not from the very ground up, because uh, Anders, the founder of the brand, has done a great job of getting the word out already. But I'm bringing my experience of 20 years of the industry in all different facets to that brand and trying to maximize its exposure and uh, create a sustainable trajectory for it. And otherwise, I have a few clients in the US for whom I write. That uh, 12,000 
uh, word deadline is thankfully not for one article. That would be um, almost a thesis, I think. But um, it's, uh, well, I don't know how many it breaks down into. I think about about 12 more articles of a thousand words each that needs to be dropped in. By Friday, I work in product development consultancy with Swiss brands behind the scenes to help them make smart decisions in the design and sales phases, um, sales communication phases of their product launches. And what else do I do? Oh, I'm actually currently making some earrings um, for all of the female friends and family members I have because it's Christmas. And I was recently on the island of Jan Mayen in the Arctic, or the Norwegian Sea, should I say, uh, which is a volcano. And I collected some volcanic sand while I was there. And I have been mixing it with uh, ultra clear resin and making earrings out of it for friends and family members. And I'm surrounded by like a rather craftsy looking table before me with uh, jewelry boxes and wrapping paper and Christmassy string and whatnot. So that's what I spend my time doing. That's actually cool. I didn't know you make jewelry. I would love to see that those earrings. <laughs> well, look, I'm not a pro. I'm not a jewelry making pro. I just, I, I like to turn my hand to, when it's Christmas, you know, I uh, I prefer to make things for my friends and family. Lovely. Nothing beats a personal touch. So let's dive in back into the mailbag because I have one from a lovely chap, Dan from London, who not only wears aviator watches, but actually works in that field. One for you, Rob. He wrote me in a rather long message on Instagram via DM, a direct message. He wrote to me, very good podcast alone. Enjoyed it very much. I'm looking forward to hearing more from you both. There is something I would like you to discuss with Rob. And it's a subject that never seems to come up at all in the hobby. We can all get a little consumed by constant new watch releases and always on the search for the next purchase, which in brackets he writes is fun, but he continues. I think there are many that there may be some envy on the contentment of the one watch collector or the very small collection. I have a few watches, however, my 3570 Speedmaster is worn 90% of the time. I've built such a history with it. In brackets, he writes my wedding, every holiday, work career, birth of my boy, etc. The more I build a picture with it, the more I'm compelled to wear it. Also being my first real watch purchase in 2009, it just feels so authentic to me and reflects my personality. My grandfather worn one watch and I remember him for it. The watch has been passed on to me, and whenever I wear it, I feel like a part of him is with me. I hope and want my son to associate my Speedmaster with me. Sometimes it stops me, I guess he means stops me, from wearing my other watches because of that sole reason. There must be other collectors or sole collector, and he doesn't mean sneakerheads because those are called also soul collectors s-o-l-e fashion fans not fashion fans <laughs> <laughs> sorry our dear listeners that's an internal joke well rob thinks it's funny i don't so he writes and he and this is going to demand sorry it's a long one 
So he writes and he finishes up his, his, his long message. There must be other collectors or sole single watch collectors out there with this mindset. I just don't really hear much about it. It would be fun to discuss this notion on your show and the thoughts and feelings about it. Apologies for the long message, Alon. He ends that message. Dan, thank you so much. Actually, a lovely question. Rob, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a beautiful question. And thanks, Dan, for taking the time to write it out. And um, thanks, Alon, for reading it all, because it was quite a long one, um, but worth every every single second spent on its creation. Um, good point. Yeah, so because it's such a long question, I'll just try and sort of pick out some of the bits that um, sparked a thought in my mind as you were going through. Firstly, the memory of your grandfather wearing a single watch his entire life is not something unusual at all, because of course, watch collecting, as it were, only really became a thing uh, in this post-quartz crisis era. And it was kickstarted, of course, by Swatch in 1983 that transformed the consumer public's idea of what a watch could be from a purely functional item to a collectible and fun accessory. The idea of luxury watches, of course, is relatively new as well, because although a Rolex was always seen as like a good watch and the kind of watch you would buy when you achieve significant success in your career or academic pursuits, it was just the top of the functional line rather than it being seen as like a pure luxury commodity in the sense that we now apply to the watch. So a lot of collectors in our generation, I say our generation, I mean, I guess any extant generation. So from the age of 18 to 68, 78, remember their fathers and grandfathers and great grandfathers wearing watches that were with them throughout their entire lives and endured all kinds of daily hardships uh, on their wrists. And it is also common for those watches to be passed down and instill in new collectors the same desire to create the kind of legacy that surrounds the watch they remember their father, grandfather, so on and so forth wearing. I know that RJ from Fratello feels very strongly about this and he frequently talks about the watches that he hopes his daughter will remember him wearing more than any others and the ones that he has earmarked to pass down to her directly. Now, he only has one daughter at the moment, so it's likely she'll be the beneficiary of his entire collecting career, which will make her a very wealthy woman indeed at one point. But it's interesting that he draws a distinction between, let's say, the, I don't know how many Speedmasters he has in the bank, maybe 50, 60 Speedmasters, and, and the one or two that really mean something to him. Like the old moonshine gold is the one that he wears the most often, I think, and the one that he imagines his daughter will take from him and think of him when she wears as well. But he also wears his father's or grandfather's Omega Pipan dial constellation in full gold with a gold bracelet he has a more than one of these in his collection now because he adores that watch so much and um it's quite fascinating to watch him sort of play this mental trick on himself sort of saying oh well this is the watch that my daughter will remember me wearing when she grows up and then to see that he actually cycles through not only the watch that his father or grandfather wore but also the many other watches that he has in his collection so the feeling that uh, Dan expresses here is not unique to Dan. It absolutely is something that is common within the watch community. And I think we all 
have or wish we had a watch that we could um, remember our forebears through. Now, my father, he's still alive. Um, he now wears a slightly better watch than he ever has done before, but only because I gave it to him and insisted that he wore it. So I don't have any memory of him wearing anything other than a Casio um, F91W when I was a kid. Uh, that, that is his signature watch still for good reason. It, is, it typifies the man perfectly. But um, I find myself quite jealous, uh, especially of you, Alan, with your dad, um, with such uh, history and knowledge and passion for watches and also like so many great uh, opinions and feelings for certain types of watches that you don't even share. So you have that that point of discussion and debate always. And uh, that's a wonderful thing and something that I hope if I ever should have children myself, I would pass on to them. To answer Dan's uh, question about well, not question, but point that he makes about the fact the three seven, uh, the three five seven zero point five zero Speedmaster is worn ninety percent of the time. I have been through phases. I always go through phases, actually, where I don't cycle through my entire collection of I don't know how many pieces now, maybe fifty or so pieces, uh, evenly. I go through small pockets of rotation. So I'll have maybe a sports watch phase where I'll want to wear my Straum and my Bremont and my Fortis, and then I'll go through a chronograph phase and I'll wear my WH and T and my Glaciter Regional or or my Speedmasters in cycle. And then I'll go through my indie or micro phase and I'll wear things like the Laventure. Uh, well, I have three of them now, so cycle through them on a daily basis, you know, just reminding myself of that. Or wear the Schofield, I'll go for an Ordain, I'll go for these slightly off base models. I do wonder if my friends and family have a particular watch that they associate with me. And if any of them cared enough to have formed that opinion in their mind, I would love to hear what it is. I'm sure my girlfriend believes that the watch she most identifies me with is my Chapek Antarctique uh, Fratello Special Edition, the Viridian Green uh, Passage de Drake model that we did in 2021, I guess. Uh, time is racing, hard to keep track of it. So even amongst uh, someone that has so many watches like RJ and even myself, there are those pieces that do stick out, not just perhaps in your mind, but in the minds of others as the watch that they will associate you with. But I don't think there's any harm in mixing it up and wearing different things all the time and certainly don't feel guilty about the fact that you wear one watch 90% of the time and the rest of your collection get to share the remaining 10%. That's part of the joy of, of the hobby. And that feeling might change. It might evolve. The 90% might shift down to 80 or 70 or 60 as, as times pass. Maybe you experience a change in taste, in fashion, in style, in body type, even over a long period. And you find that the Speedmaster no longer feels feels like the watch for you so um don't agonize over it enjoy it and i'm sure that everybody around you that identifies that speedmaster with you directly will appreciate it for that reason long after you're gone and your collection is consumed by the ravenous horde of collectors waiting to make it theirs <laughs> that's a bit dark <laughs> I'm, I'm letting you enjoy this moment <laughs> All right, I'm done. Good. I'll jump in. I always loved collecting. My dad has some watches in his collection that are cornerstones. He did rotate a lot. Um, as a kid, the biggest impressions that made on me were the Portuguese 
Automatic Chronograph 3714, which came out in 1985. So I was uh, five, six years old. And before that, he was wearing the actual titanium Porsche design watches. So the Ocean 2000, the Compass, the, the, the hamburger, so the, the flip watch with the compass inside, the chronograph where the pushes were pushed inside. That sparked my love for titanium. My uncle wore for donkey years the Omega Seamaster Polaris. So it's the titanium where it has like a golden netting embedded in the titanium. So if you remember them, Rob. Um, Otherwise, Google uh, Google the watch, and 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 I've never actually owned them. And because of that, I want to own one of those. I actually do remember that because I used to service them on the regular when I was a watchmaker. And one of my best friends, uh, Matthew John Parkinson Holder, has one as well that he assembled from basically scrap bits that he managed to source on eBay, and it looks a million dollars. It, it certainly went through a phase of not being cool, but it's back again. The Polaris is back. Yeah, still not so much, but I actually want one because it reminds me of my un- my late uncle, and um, so it's it's ingrained in my mind. Um, uh, I love the Rouleau bracelet by Breitling, as I've expressed in the interview with Sylvain. It's because my dad had the first one in 85 83 4 even it was when they came out and and that that made an impression on me uh, a, a watch that i don't love and a lot of people think i'm crazy is the santos by cartier so my dad had the the, the 80s version with the gold screws and the small one the, the, the tiny version in the automatic that made an impression on me but i didn't love it then and i don't love it now and i don't regret he doesn't have it anymore um for me and myself, I am fortunate to have two children, and I've said this on air. My wife got me a watch when she gave birth to both of them for our baby boy, who's now six. He's not a baby anymore. It's the, it's actually the one after the three five seven zero. So it's the moon watch with the eighteen sixty one caliber. But the reference numbers became way too long. They start with three one one, and I don't know what. Um, engraved with his name and date so obviously that's going to be for him and for our baby girl it's a first omega in space so we wanted similar watches a bit smaller i hope they like them do i think about them remember me by my watches i actually do but i don't wear one as often as possible so they link me to that watch i hope that when i'm not here anymore They'll pick a mix from my collection. Not all my watches are going to go to my boy. They can split them. I hope my girl will like watches. Maybe they do. she doesn't. Um, I do not let that philosophy dominate my fun of rotation, if you understand what I mean, Dan. Wear what you like. Trust me, your boy will have very very fond memories of you i think you're an amazing person i know you're an amazing dad and husband so don't worry too much about it enjoy it and kids see hear and feel everything so he'll understand that this speed is your favorite um i know you have other lovely watches so wear them enjoy them and um i would say don't worry too much Nice answer. Thank you. 
It's quite a, quite an emotional topic, really, isn't it? But I mean, they're the ones that we like to address. I mean, even in our second episode and our first ever interview with Jean Claude Biver, we got emotional straight off the bat. Like we got down to the driving forces of um, why we do what we do, why we collect what we collect, and why a lot of us are motivated to succeed in this industry. Talking of people motivated to succeed. In this industry, you could name any independent brand that would fit that definition. We've got a question here from one of your countrymen, Walter, and he says, what's the best new kid on the block in the indie space? And I will let you answer this one first. Take your time. Enjoy yourself. Wow. Okay. Walter, thank you very much. Um, For our listeners, just so you know, the mailbag is big. We see them coming in rob and i just accumulate them in a shared online document but we don't prep this episode so we really do it on the fly so i'm caught off guard right now um so he's not asking what my favorite new and what my favorite indie watchmaker watch brand is new kid on the block okay so new 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 um last year's new kid on the block was full and murray which I think is amazing what they've done. And they launched episode two, chapter two this year. New on the scene this year is, and I've mentioned him, Hakim El Kadiri, who revived an old watch brand, Elka Watch Company. So he's new and he's indie. Obviously an easy one. You introduced Arcanaut to me. When you said you start to work with these lovely chaps, I've never heard of it. It's totally new what you guys are doing there. The case is not completely my vibe, but I can really appreciate it. Very Danish design, which after Dutch design, Danish design is amazing. Um, love the dials, Black Badger. We need to give a shout out to him. Um, 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 the, 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 the lovely, creative English newcomer, Underdog, where the O is a zero with his watermelon <laughs> watch. I love that one. Oh, Rich. Yeah, I don't know him personally, but uh, I've no, I know of him because I am a watch nerd, but I haven't met him, but I love what he's doing because I think he comes from the creative sector, right? He's, he's, a, he's a creative guy in media. Oh, very and, much. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah, he, started, nice he started a watch brand um, and I love his watermelon watch. Um, I actually don't know if Anordain is that new, but it's not old. No, well, actually, funnily enough, I was talking to Lewis the other day, and it feels to me like anodane has been around for 10 years, and the company has been in existence for uh, five or six or seven years. Well, I think about seven. I think it started around 2015, but they didn't actually have any watches out until 2018 or something stupid like that, 2017, 18. So, I mean, it's it's well-established. It was very quickly well-established because, I mean... What they brought to market was not just like a very identifiable USP, but also just a brilliant design language to the website, all the print media, everything just hummed with, like everything just sang with perfection, like from from the very get-go. So yeah, I mean, they're still up and coming. They're still learning to deal with the success that they've had in the first couple of years. I mean, you can put them on the list. I mean, I would put them on my list, I guess. Then are they new kids on the block? They're new enough. Let's let's say within the last five years, because I mean, the first two or three years of a brand tend to just be feeling around, trying to figure out a foothold and then going from there. Yeah. So um, a watch I ordered this year, but has a huge waiting list and I paid 50% upfront is Ming. It's 
that that I think it's five years old. Actually, they they actually celebrate the fifth anniversary. So I I'm actually know that they're five years old. So with your new frame of reference that you gave me just now, Ming is high on my list. I think you should really put an eye out on them. Um, Vertex is a revive of an old broad arrow. Dirty Dozen brand. But I think we should keep an eye out on them. Uh, Baltic, is that five years old? I bought a Baltic this year myself. Collab with a collected man. So Baltic is on my radar. Um, You, Rob, you go. If we're talking five years, uh, obviously I'm going to say Laventure. I'm gonna I'm gonna mention it at the top because I think that it's probably gonna be an answer to another question we have in a mailbag as well. So I'll just get it out of the way because I don't want it to be too heavy in a Laventure presence on the episode. But um 2017, founded on Kickstarter, first model 1,400 francs, excluding taxes, second model 2,700 francs. Um first model was released in three different colors, 50 pieces each. Second model was released in six variations, 50 pieces each. Green, blue, black dials, either steel or bronze case. Third model, 3,500, ballpark, excluding taxes. GMT, gorgeous, two models, 99 pieces each. Fourth model, solid gold dial reissue of the first piece, 5,000 or around that, 4,200, excluding francs, ex- excluding taxes, I believe. 99 pieces. Then the fifth model, that dropped this year, and this is the model that will probably be the subject of another answer today. The Laventure Automobile Chronograph, 8,200 excluding taxes. Crazy jump up in price. Why? Proprietary movement. Within five years, the brand has gone from a standing start. Didn't even sell out on Kickstarter, by the way. So people that like complain about um, <laughs> not being able to buy one and pretending that they've never been able to buy one actually weren't there at the start. So they can go whistle. Um there was two watches left over. Two of the brand pieces didn't sell in the first drop for anyone that wondered. In the second release, the Diver Sumarine, there was a total of 300 pieces available. It took over two months for them all to sell out. So there's no FOMO rush at the time of launch. Third model, this is when it really kicked off. Three and a half hours it took to sell out. That was a big one. That was a big jump. That's when it became like it sort of started teetering on the hype brand side of things. Fourth model sold out in about 10 minutes. Fifth model, well, they were out of stock within a few seconds and officially sold out within seven minutes when the last person cleared checkout. And uh, that release got just as much criticism as it did plaudits because, of course, there are a lot of disappointed people that now want to buy into a brand that they're, they're just discovering about. There are some people, lucky people like me, who bought the first two models when nobody else was vying for them and then bought back in for the last model on account of the fact that some of the, uh, well, no, all of the previous purchases of the w- watches had the chance to buy the chronograph a day early, which was, you know, much appreciated. That brand has gone from nothing to having its own base caliber, which is it has a modular dial side construction, so it can be modified to take all kinds of complications in the future. And although the case back view that we're going to see from the brand will likely not change for quite some time because I'll just use the same driving caliber, it's a massive achievement in my opinion. Like that is just how you do it. Okay, Ming is an excellent example. I also backed my first one this year. I've not received it yet. It was a GMT Kyoto, I think. I can't remember which one it was. The gilt one, actually. Um, so I'd still have to pay the other half of it because it's 50%. 
non-refundable deposit up front. That's a brand that's done a lot already. Maybe it's reached its apex and it's on the way down. Hard to tell. I think they're special creations in the in the cave. Their uh, really limited high-end stuff is incredibly interesting. That I think will keep on keep on trucking for quite some time. Uh, Singer Reimagined. That's a brand that I got a lot of time for. Marco at the helm. Beautiful design, different way of looking at things, and a great sense of humor for watches at that price point. Um, the, the biggest success story in recent years is, of course, Chapek, I think, with the Antarctique. It's an independent, still up and coming. I mean, it's been around for eight years now, I guess. But, I mean, the, the real takeoff of the brand was two years ago with that sports watch launch. I don't know if Trilobe is younger than five years. I think they're making... Uh... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And... I had Horaj, strangely enough, on my mind. H-O-R-A-G-E. I don't think they're older than five years. I want to play a game with you on this topic. I love games. <laughs> I know you do. And I know that Wouter, who've asked us this question, would love where we're taking this. Let's both mention unlimited quantity of independence that we think are... The next and have the it factor, if you understand what I mean. Who are the next ones to break through or who are undervalued right now, if you catch my drift, Rob? You want to go first? Oh, undervalued. That's um, that's tricky because, okay, I'll bias. Obviously, I'll say Arcanop and just get that out there because uh, I'm a company man, you know. But um, Laventure has reached a point now where it can't really fall into that undervalued category. Um, the, the, the moment to buy into that, brand if you wanted to make money off it has probably passed i'm not sure about that actually to be honest there's only 99 pieces of the most recent chronograph available and there was apparently 5,000 people trying to buy it so we shall see what they trend for on the resale market but mine's not going anywhere that's for sure um japek is it undervalued no not anymore they broke not through. anymore they've they've done it i i guess sorry i guess that if Things sell out in a jiffy, and and the resale value is above retail. You've broken through. Okay, okay. So, all right. So we're talking about like the dime, the diamonds, the hidden diamonds, diamonds in the rough at the moment. The ones that people can still like get more bang for their yes. buck. Yes. All right. Okay. Um, give me a moment to think about this. Is Fortis in the mainstream yet? <laughs> I would say Fortis is like, it's still got so much potential. So this is a brand that's been around a hundred years and they are renowned for having had the first commercially available automatic watch um, in partnership with John Harwood, who created the automatic winding mechanism for a wristwatch. And yet, despite that, the complete overhaul of the brand and its direction by the current owner, CEO, Yup Philippe and his team has, has meant that they have potential unlike few other long-time established brands right ahead of them so i think that that's something that we could see i'm not not saying in any way that like oh you buy one of these and you're gonna be able to sell it for more money afterwards that's a horrible sort of criteria to apply to any of this but in terms of something that you can get for less money than it's worth and something that will give you long-term enjoyment and something that is maybe a little bit off the radar I would say go Fortis. Um, I'm a bit biased. I'm a Fortis owner. I'm a Fortis wearer. I love the guys there. I think they go about things the right way. 
Um, but you can't fault the quality of the products. And I'm, I see these watches at every stage of the production process. I know the effort that goes into them. I know the money they spend on getting these components exactly right. I know the sleepless nights that everybody is afforded in the building because they're trying to do something a little bit weird. Everything's always a little bit weird, but it always comes out looking just perfect, like it was meant to be there and like it couldn't have been any other way. So I would say that. You know, weirdly enough, <laughs> uh, there are some pretty big brands that fall into this category still. I think, you know, um, there are also certain parts of certain brands. So like Moser, can't really say Moser is a brand in general because obviously the streamliner tends to trend above retail. But not all models within that collection actually do. You can pick up like a heritage Moser for actually below retail on the pre-love market and that then becomes an incredible value proposition and something that I think will recover and go back up in the future when they stop making them because it's just such a nice watch. It's just such a good thing. What do you think? What have you got on your list? I agree with you about Moser, but I think they made it. So that one I'll foul, but I'm with you. On that same wavelength, Parmigiani Fleurier is getting there, but not there yet. So I would oh, keep yeah. an eye on them. Nice. Um, definitely. And I think uh, our friend Guido Trini is doing amazing things. Um, I would mention, obviously, Christian van der Klau, now at the helm of Pim Kuslach, I have very, very high expectations of them, but I'm not objective. I ordered my own piece, still waiting for it. I became an authorized dealer, so I'm not objective. This is a disclaimer, guys. Um, Gronefeld did make it. Van der Klau, not yet, Christian van der Klau. Um, um, I, I think Trilobe is a brand to definitely watch out for. Um, T-R-I-L-O-B-E um, they became independent now Gérard Perregon released now then I think both brands are not there yet and those are old impressive names uh, but I think they are going to do amazing things um, Armin Strom what do you think of that Rob? I'm actually not a huge fan of Armin Strom um, I was at one point, I think it was when they did like the sort of fire, ice, wind, air movements. But since then, no, it's really got, gone off the boil for me. I'm, um, I'm not a lover of that. I'll tell you one weird little brand that I like that not many people seem to feel the same about is ZRC 1904. It's a mm -hmm. small independent, um, pretty much entirely dive watch focused brand with a crown at six o'clock weirdly enough and this very i think attractive but highly utilitarian bracelet design it was favored by the french navy i think in like the 60s and it's it's not a cheap watch uh, they're in three and a half thousand ballpark but it's very comparable to everything else in its category in terms of design, which I think is exceptional, actually. Usability, which is right up there. Huge hands mean for excellent legibility in low light conditions. And an iconic, almost, bezel that doesn't get enough uh, praise in my, in my mind. So that's a little weirdo that I would pluck out of nowhere mm -hmm. and say, mm -hmm. you know, if, you, if you're looking for something that has huge emotional returns, it's not going to make you money it won't make you money no way but it's a lovely watch to wear a lovely thing to look at and that's the kind of thing it could be a daily beater and uh more power to you if you choose that one i love it i love it that's a good one 
kudos to you, Rob. And what you said about Armin Strom, I feel you. I think what they make technically is amazing, especially the resonance piece. They need a bit of sexiness to the complete watch, in my humble opinion. And who am I? Yeah. But maybe we can uh, sprinkle some of our uh, uh, wild ideas in, in a collab there, Rob. So maybe let's propose that. Um, two brands that I really think they deserve it are HYT and Belarus. I think those are two independents, different price categories, totally different watches that deserve it. And one brand that I really hope they grow more and they deserve it, but need redesigning is Beauvais. But we're having the CEO, Mr. Raffi, on the show soon. So stay tuned for that. I'm really looking forward to that interview. Yeah, I'm sure he is now after he's heard those glowing comments. But you can't wait to find out what it is you do to a Bove if you got it in your hands. I don't know either yet, but okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that is the problem, isn't it? Yeah, we, we like what they do. We like their ability to execute strange and wild designs, but we're not sure what we do just to tweak it slightly. We'll have to think about it because Bove is, well, fully ridiculous in, in the best possible way, in my opinion. Right, um, let's move on because it seems like we are about to tumble down a terrible rabbit hole there. Um, fascinating question. Um Obviously, we sort of expanded the parameters and moved it around a little bit. So I hope that was um, not too far off the mark for you, Valter. But thank you again for chiming in. All right. I've got one from our good friend, Gary. And uh, this is, it sounds like a choose your own ending story. So I'm going to read it to you. And you tell me what you think about this one, okay? Okay. There lies before you two watches at a dealer that you love equally, that you can buy for exactly the same price. Let us assume they are both three-hand steel sports watches of very similar style, color, size, etc. In everything other than the level of finishing, they are comparable. One is a brand new hype watch at retail that changes hands for double that on the secondary market. The other is pre-owned but still under warranty and is costing you only half its original retail price, which is currently its true market value. For the sake of this question, assume that you cannot quickly resell the first watch as it will ruin your good relationship with the dealer and that the second watch is in immaculate pre-owned condition with full box and papers from a currently unfashionable haute horlogerie brand and finished to the very same standard. You can only afford to buy one of them. Which do you buy and why? <laughs> what a great question! Brilliantly written as well. That's lovely. Okay, off you go. Gary. Gary, thank you very much. Cool question. And I guess people that know me know what I'm going to answer. But it makes it... A, I love the game. I love these games. So guys, keep on posting them and sending them to us. But it's not comparing apples with apples. We're not even comparing apples and pears. We're comparing apples with oranges right here. Because one is new, one is pre-owned, and then one is a hype watch, one isn't. Um, but my answer is actually simple, so we don't need to overanalyze it. Buy what makes you happy. Forget the value. Buy what you love. Every time you look at the watch, does it create a smile on your face? Every time you put it away, do you miss it? Every time you grab it out of your drawer or wherever you keep your watches and you pick it up, it gives you that tingle. It makes you happy. That's the watch I would pick. For the sake of playing the game, um, it's it's got it's got to be the pre-owned, doesn't it? 
Yeah, yes. Because I don't buy hype watches for the hype. I don't buy watches as a commodity. It's obviously, again, I I don't want to polarize. If you've saved up a lot of money for that one watch, and it's a big chunk of your daily spending, and you want that security that the watch retains its value, yes, I understand that analogy. Go for it. Because financial security and a peace of mind is important. But Gary took away that element in his question, I believe, by saying, hey, that pre-owned is already at its value. The day you don't want it anymore, you don't lose on it. That's, I think, what he means. Can I ask a question? Can I make a slight adjustment to this? Because I think it makes it um, even better. So in the question, Gary says, you can't sell the watch because it will damage the relationship with your AD. So that leaves you in a situation where you're either buying that watch and holding it indefinitely or buying the watch that you, by the sounds of the story, actually like more, but just don't make any money on. My wrinkle, my alteration would be you can sell it immediately, but the retailer will be so pissed off of you, they won't sell you the other watch. So we're basically saying, assuming that you don't like the hype piece more than the pre-owned, because that's kind of the predication. Because if you like the hype piece more, you're going to buy the hype piece, right? So this situation that Gary's presenting this really is saying, are you buying for love or money? And if it's pre-owned and you love it, but you, you won't make any money on it, but you can have it and it's a true market value, or it's like you would sacrifice the opportunity to own that watch that you actually want. Let's say it's an Apollo Soyez or something like that, something hard to come by, something rare, something you're not going to get the opportunity to buy again, and you love it, and you've always wanted it, and it's there. Or you can buy a Rolex Oyster Perpetual 36mm turquoise dial, right? That's the question. You can sell that turquoise dial probably for 30K or something. It only retails for about six grand, but you could sell it for about 30 on the pre-owned market immediately. Now, so would you take 24 grand cash or the opportunity to own a watch that you really, really, really want. So I guess I can answer for you and for myself. It's hands down the Suyos. So the Apollo. It's a watch that we want. And I want to make a comment here because I am an AD for many brands, not all of them. I don't care what somebody does with a watch. I, I am not dictated by anyone or any brand. But... For me, as a retailer, I enjoy selling to those people that gain joy from a watch. But that being said, who am I to tell you what you're going to do with a watch? As an AD, I sell at RRP and evermore, sometimes less, sometimes not. Pre-owned, that's the craze of the day, right? It, 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 it's, it became sometimes, for some brands, a commodity, and we go up and died with the ebb and flow of, and the tides of market pricing. But this aspect of pissing off your AD, I don't know what other ADs do, and maybe that's irrelevant, um, because I guess it's, a, it's a, a little loop of these hype watches being hyped. I mean, it seems that everybody's helping each other in this, this, this vicious cycle. Um, so I, I don't take that into consideration in this story, if you catch my drift, Rob. Yep, I catch it squarely in the numbers. Good throw. I like it. All right, let's wrap up the show because we've been chatting for over an hour and we've got through quite a few questions and we took them off in some weird, unusual tangents 
So uh, I think we've said all we can say on those topics right now. It feels like we got through, for some reason today, it feels like we touched on a lot of different things. Does it feel like that to you? Yeah. And that was actually a lot of fun again. It was an interesting show, very interesting show. If you would like to get involved directly with a show, as many of our listeners have done, then you can send us your questions to either our Instagram accounts. I'm on Instagram at Rob Nuds, that's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. Alon can be found at Alon Ben Joseph, that's A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. Or you can email us both at either rob at therealtime.show or alon at therealtime.show. We will be back on Thursday with another interview for your ears and then on Tuesday again with another interactive session. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking.